0: Hello, dear listeners, especially you wonderful patrons who make this possible. I have some good news to report, as you may have heard in the first episode of the Global Far Right miniseries, um, that I was at a bit of a crossroads and deciding whether I could afford to continue the show at all. Well, I have to say that the target I set for last month, in terms of new patrons and support, is looking like it's um, very much on track for a one-month target. We're definitely not out of the way yet, but on our way, certainly buying the show some time. If I can keep up this momentum and get enough subscribers in the next couple of months, I can absolutely see polite conversations sticking around. So I don't want to overstate anything, but I am cautiously optimistic. Thank you so much to everyone who became a patron, to those who upped their pledge to the new premium tier, which offers a lot of exclusives and much earlier access to things. It really, really means a lot. If you are listening and not a patron yet, please do consider becoming one if you enjoy the show and would like to see it continue because it really is still currently at risk of uh, shutting down if we don't have enough subscribers. And another way you can support the show is by leaving a five-star a review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. All these things help more people to find the show. This new miniseries will primarily be available on the premium tier, so if you want full access, early access, do sign up via patreon.com forward slash nicemangos. Now, as for the upcoming conversation in this episode, um, that happened on October 6th about a week or so before the general elections in New Zealand, so we left not knowing what would happen. Byron, my guest, later sent me a voice memo after the fact, so we can hear a brief message from him about the results at the end of the episode. Also, this conversation took place just before the tragic events of October 7th and what's been unfolding ever since, so that is why you won't hear us discuss or reference those events. Anyway, it was nice to re-listen to this chat as I was editing and think about something different. I have my guests for the next couple of episodes in this mini-series in place. Hopefully, some more great episodes will come your way in the next little while. I have really, really enjoyed researching and producing this miniseries so far, and I think in the current political situation, now more than ever, it's important to have a wider, more global perspective on things. Anyway, here we go. Enjoy. The conditions in the past few years have been a perfect storm for extremism, Is a terrorist attack. hate, it's- Community. And conspiracy theories the to flourish around the world. The 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 Join me as I try to learn more, one country at a time. I mean, no in right another Polite Conversations mini series, this time exploring the global far right. Hello, and welcome to episode two of my brand new miniseries on the global far right. Today, I'll be talking about uh, what's going on in New Zealand with author Byron C. Clark. He wrote the excellent book, Fear. I've been reading it myself, and uh, I can't put it down. It's There's so much familiar in there, even though I've never been to New Zealand, but like the themes are all the same. So how are you doing, Byron?
1: Yeah, good. Thank you. Thanks for inviting me on.
0: Yeah, thanks so much for coming on um, where can people find your book
1: if you're living in New Zealand you can get it uh, at all good bookstores if you're in Australia you can get it um, most bookstores and if you're elsewhere in the world the paperbacks a bit harder to come by but you should be able to get the ebook in anywhere anywhere you usually buy ebooks and if you really want the paperback there are a few New Zealand and Australia based uh, retailers who will ship internationally but you'll pay a lot for shipping so I'd recommend getting the ebook if you're if you're in North America or Europe or wherever
0: Right, right, and that's called fear again. So do check it out, everyone. And now let's uh, let's get into it. How are things in New Zealand?
1: Well, um, we're as we record this, we're a week out from from a general election. Um, I've just been reading this morning actually about um, how the uh, so-called freedom movement has been trying to get influence in Parliament through taking over existing political parties and unfortunately having a little bit of success with that. So that's, that's kind of where things are at politically right now.
0: Yeah, I guess by the time I release this episode, the election will have happened. So mm. good luck with that. And uh, yeah, I was just reading your book and it struck me like how familiar so many of the talking points of the far right in New Zealand are, really. It just seems like everywhere you look now, They're echoing many of the same things, right? There's, like, a theme of anti-immigration, anti-immigrant stuff, and the specifically anti-Muslim stuff, Mm. where they're fear-mongering about, you know, great replacement. And, uh... Now, more recently, there's the anti-trans stuff, and, mm. you know, it's it's the same.
1: Yeah, I, I think they're seeing really the same same talking points all over the world, especially the English-speaking world, but even, even other countries. Mm-hmm. Um, there's podcasts here where they'll get uh, MPs from, like, the Netherlands and, and places on uh, in English to, you know, talk about what they're doing. Yeah, it's the same same sort of ideology just spreading around the world and yeah reaching places as far-flung as New Zealand here at the bottom of the world
0: yeah yeah and you know you've had quite uh, the experience it seems with the far right over there and they've personally stalked and harassed and come after you to quite a great degree can you talk a little bit about that
1: yeah, certainly. So I um I've been I've been a political activist in one sense or another, you know, since the since going on anti-war marches when I was a teenager. But um, specifically looking at the far right is something that I've focused on really since the uh, mass shooting at a mosque here in, in Christchurch where I live. And after that, I started to make video essays on YouTube looking mostly at some of our like local far-right influences, you know, people who had had YouTube channels and, and so forth, and yeah, that got fairly significant backlash. Um, I was uh, followed home from an event by a young member of a, a white nationalist group, and then my address where I was staying at that time was shared with, with others, started to get things in the letterbox, you know, printouts from some of the Facebook pages these groups had just to show me, like, hey, look, we, we know where you live, and then probably... Biggest escalation was when one of these people, a local YouTube personality called Lee Williams, who goes by the name Cross the Rubicon on YouTube, he actually turned up at my workplace, um, gave a fake name at the door, came in with his camera, started filming me. Which some listeners might be familiar with uh, Tommy Robinson in the UK using mm-hmm. this tactic to intimidate his critics. And Williams was from the UK originally, and, a, and a, you know a big fan of Robinson, so I think he was you know emulating this. Um, and yeah, that had a that had a pretty significant impact on my life because of course the the goal of that was to you know try and get me to lose my job so after that the company I worked for started getting hate mail started getting a lot of one star reviews on uh, Google and Facebook became worried about you know threats of violence to the office that you know could affect not just me but other staff there yeah it was a <laughs> it was a pretty Significant time. This is how I was targeted before the book was even out. You know, I write about this in the book. Um, just from just from doing YouTube and and the occasional article and and so forth and and being a bit of a commentator and the news. Um, so. Things would escalate after I appeared on TV or radio because uh, the idea really was to you know shut me up, stop me from speaking, so the, the targeting would happen after I was speaking publicly about this on YouTube or on television mm-hmm. or, or wherever. Yeah.
0: That sounds terrifying. I'm so sorry you had to go through that, and I hope it's uh, calmed down a lot since then.
1: Uh, it has calmed down a bit. You know, uh, three civil court cases later, <laughs> oh. we don't uh, we don't really have laws against stalking in New Zealand. Um, it's something that oh. depending on how the election goes we might get some laws. But we do have we do have a thing called the Harmful Digital Communications Act where you can have a civil case against somebody if their digital communications, like what they're doing online, if that can be shown to be causing you significant distress. And so I've taken a couple of civil court cases under that and one under the Harassment Act for like a more restraining order for someone. And that's something that I've done not really just for myself, but also because without Doing something like this, um, the the lesson the far right takes is that there'll be no legal consequences for mm-hmm. you know doing things like turning up at someone's workplace, and that has this chilling effect where more people will be afraid to speak out. So mm-hmm. yeah, so taking those court cases was trying to show that hey, there will be consequences if you accost someone at their workplace or at their home or whatever.
0: Right, right, yeah. Well, I hope they get like the harshest consequences that they can, but I don't think that'll stop them. And this all started when you what, you were just monitoring like their Facebook groups and you tweeted out some screenshots of the kinds of things they were posting?
1: Yeah, yeah. So like I said I did the YouTube channel but I got a much bigger following on on Twitter where I'd show people what was being posted and shared, often and asking people to, you know, report certain things um, um, particularly on YouTube, where things will often slip through the cracks for moderation. Mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. Particularly in you know a small country like this, I, I think that YouTube isn't getting a significant pushback to New Zealand-based far-right content creators because they only have a few thousand subscribers, which globally isn't significant. But, you know, and here they can be quite significant um, figures with a relatively small following. So getting people to report videos, and then that would that would cause the people uploading these videos to then target me because they worried that their influence was at risk by, you know, me uh, getting people to report their videos. So, yeah, for, for some of these people, it does not take much to really set them off.
0: Right. And it's like the irony of them framing themselves as free speech warriors and, you know, anti snowflake when really they embody everything that they complain about the left
1: doing. Right? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, um, I get annoyed at some of the sort of so-called free speech advocates we have here as well. The like people who aren't, you know, necessarily in agreement with with the far right, but will defend their free speech and mm-hmm. then say nothing about the way the far right is using these threats of violence and intimidation to mm-hmm. silence the speech of their critics. And, you know, I think that's a free speech issue as well. But we don't we don't hear so much about that from our so-called free speech advocates.
0: Right, right. Like, in a North American context, the IDW is, is basically, like, the epitome of that, right? Or mm-hmm. was... They would um, complain about anyone criticizing people who use the N word or you know just really offensive racist things, but then when like a left wing professor got fired for something, they would you'd never hear from them.
1: Yeah, similar, similar situation here. Um, yeah, there's a group called the Free Speech Union who are a sort of astroturf group. she um, has, a, has um, a lot of the same members as a thing called the Taxpayers Union who are a kind of right-wing libertarian lobby group. And, um, yeah, they they did a survey of academics and put out this press release about, you know, wokeness and academics afraid to say things. But, you know, they'll, they'll do nothing, say nothing about you know, people being targeted by the far right, as you know, as several academics in this country have for speaking at conferences and things, and then they'll get targeted, and the universities will be mm-hmm. inundated with emails telling them to fire them. And and yeah, the Free Speech Union doesn't talk about that, but they talk about people being afraid to say non woke things to their class, or you know, and and it's it's pretty transparent that it's it's not really about free speech; it's about anti-wokeness and they're using free Mm. speech as a way to organize rather than a more principled stand.
0: Yeah. Yeah. It's absolutely not principled. And what they choose to focus on is very telling, right? If you start looking at the patterns, it only swings one way. So Mm. yeah, um, there seems to be like overlaps between not just like the far right around the world, but like also A lot of the stuff that you see from centrist pundits in North America or, like, even from my earlier on the internet days, the new atheist circles, like, the overlaps in those talking points are really um, fucking scary to me because Mm. I was like, I was in that, you know? I was a Sam Harris fan, and I was a new atheist, and yes, people around me always used to talk about the Islamization of UK and Sharia law, and coming from Saudi Arabia myself, it didn't strike me as a dog whistle, because if you are oppressed by... You know, if all the right wingers in your country are Muslims and they're oppressing you, then mm-hmm. it's going to be like, it's going to sound good at first when other people are criticizing them. But then you look at it on a more like world stage context, and it is definitely troubling because it's all about the anti immigrant and the, oh, those brown people are barbaric kind of trope, you know?
1: Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, and any, any uh, seemingly progressive stance that these people take, um, you know, whether it's you know, claiming to be supporting women's rights or, mm-hmm. or whatever, I mean, it's just a, a cover, really, for a, for a kind of xenophobia. Yeah, and, and I think Muslims have really been targeted. I remember one one Facebook page that I followed that's that's gone now, but they had a pin post at the top. Uh, and it was a meme that said you uh, know you can't be racist against Islam because Islam isn't a race and it was this this yes. kind of way of like hiding hiding a xenophobia towards Ugh. you know these these people from you know from the Middle East and North Africa and, and yeah. parts of Asia as well and like but hiding it behind this supposed critique of a uh, religious ideology when it wasn't really about that it was you know it was about foreigners and that's um, right that's how they that's how they could uh, Make it more socially
0: acceptable. And I can't tell you how many times I heard those lines, like from, you know, Richard Dawkins Mm. or Sam Harris, who are supposed to be like these rational, sort of, they claim to be on the left, right? Mm. And they fool a lot of people. They seem to rope in a lot. More people that people on the far right would not be able to,
1: yeah, yeah, it appeals to a bit of a different audience and but similar talking points, yeah,
0: exactly. That way, the Islamophobia, the anti immigrant sentiment, the anti BLM, the transphobia kind of gets pushed on a group. That would probably recognize it for what it is if it was coming from, like, Mm. Tucker Carlson or other people on the far right.
1: Yeah, absolutely.
0: But when it comes from these, like, rational men of science, it gets, like, a shiny new packaging. Mm. And, um yeah, the theme of Islam really strikes a personal chord with me because, you know, for anyone that might be listening that hasn't listened to my content, I am an ex-Muslim that grew up in Saudi Arabia. I had a brief uh, year or two in the new atheist scene where I was super, like, mad at religion. And uh, growing up in a theocracy can do that to you, but then... Hopefully, once things start to calm down and you're like, yes, yes, I can, like, now see things more clearly rather than just through that angry lens, then you look at these new atheists and just like how you were saying that so many of these things are just a cover for their xenophobia, Mm. they're anti-feminist, like so much of the time, while they went on and on about how um, they just wanted to help Muslim women, right? Mm. Or um, their critiques of Islam very quickly turn into great replacement theory or uh, you know, general anti-migrant sentiment, calling them like all kinds of horrible things Mm. Like, Sam Harris praised conversations from Tommy Robinson, where he basically spouted white supremacist tropes, like, so clearly. Like, these Mm. Somali men are coming to rape our women. And uh, Sam Harris was, you know, not only praising that, but also promoting that and retweeting that back in the day. So, Mm. yeah, that's why the Islam stuff really uh, scares me, because I could have kind of gotten taken into it because you know being made to wear a burqa by religious morality police uh, while i was growing up was not something i liked and you know being told that women were like second class citizens was also not something i liked. so obviously when i moved out of saudi i had a lot of uh, anger towards religion but Mm -hmm. and so that's how they get a lot of ex-muslims on side though Right. I don't know how closely or if you're familiar at all with new atheist dynamics. Yeah, somewhat. Yeah. But they love bomb a lot of the ex Muslims. Like the more painful the story, like Ian Hirsi Ali, the more they will, you know, enthusiastically embrace someone, give them a lot of attention, platforms, and some people, you know, get really swayed by that and then mm. they start spouting more and more they become like the token immigrant, anti-immigrant so like as an example, Ian Hersiali Ali did a book, I, I think it's called Prey, like P-R-E-Y
1: oh I think I've seen that one yeah. yeah
0: it's all about like literally her words are like black and brown men coming to Europe to, I don't know, rape women or something like mm. that so it's pretty blatant how they become, and yes, like now yeah. there's like another theme of like the anti hijab activists crossing over with like the turfs.
1: Ah uh, yes, yeah.
0: But that's enough for me. Let's hear more from you. <laughs> sure. What I did want to ask you about is like ripple effects. From like American politics, Canadian politics. I know you guys had like a big anti-vax, anti-lockdown scene as well. Like we had that whole Canadian trucker thing.
1: Yeah, so that that was quite influential on the um, the so-called freedom movement here. But when a few influences in that space called for a a convoy to Parliament, there was very little. Actual organising needing to be done because the audience had been watching what was happening in Ottawa, and uh, similar thing was happening in Canberra, Australia. Um, again, influenced by by Canada, and so as soon as there was this call out for a convoy to Parliament, people people knew like, "Oh yeah, we're doing we're doing what the Canadian truckers are doing," and they, they tried to frame it as a trucker convoy, but there were very few actual truckers here because <laughs> it wasn't uh, wasn't exactly the same issues. Mm-hmm. Um, 'Cause there's you know, there's no border here that truckers can cross being an island, mm-hmm. so we didn't have the, you know, vaccine passed across a border thing. But the, yeah, certainly all the anti vaxxers and assorted other conspiracy theorists started piling in their cars and driving from both ends of the country to, to the capital, which is roughly in the middle. And um yeah, and the the influence of uh, Canada was pretty obvious because some people even brought along Canadian flags to like show their <laughs> solidarity with the Canadian.
0: That's so wild. Canadian
1: truckers and the prime minister at the time that said, you know, it looks. Looks like a you know foreign protest because there were Canadian flags and there were Trump campaign flags and um, you know there were there were New Zealand flags as well. But there was this this sort of mix of um, you know flags from different countries where they were having protest or Trump campaign flags to sort of show this international solidarity of this movement.
0: Wow. And like, you know, during the early years of the pandemic, so many people in Canada were admiring uh, New Zealand and Australia, handling it so well and Mm -hmm. keeping the rates really low and essentially having like very little lockdown time because the rates
1: were so low. Yeah, um, we had a you know a couple of um, quite strict lockdowns, but compared to what what's had in some other countries, they were they were relatively short. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and pretty soon we were back to yeah, you know, we were one of the few countries having having music festivals during the pandemic because right. um, you know we kept COVID out. For, uh, but yet you know there there's a you know crowd here who will talk about the tyranny of of the you know the last prime minister and, um, mm. because we had these short lockdowns and and you know and, and other restrictions. There and different different groups would be conceptualising this in different different ways. I've got a chapter in the book on uh, on the Christian right, and there was a there was a big pushback from kind of evangelical Protestants who believed that anything the government did which inhibited their ability to worship was you know, an affront to God. So there was a, you know, significant evangelical wing of this movement who opposed lockdowns that stopped them going to church or even gathering limits that Restricted how many people could be in a church, or requiring a vaccine pass to go into a, a building like mm. that. So there were all these different groups who, um, for various reasons, conceptualised our pandemic response as as tyranny. And so there was that uh, that Christian side of it, and then there were you know the sort of anti United Nations, anti globalism conspiracy theorists who saw <laughs> you know saw the World Health Organisation as being this you know tyrannical globalist uh, cartel or whatever. Um, yeah, and those. And they all then came together when we had this convoy to Parliament uh, which turned into an occupation uh, that lasted about three weeks.
0: Oh, wow. Yeah, that's Mm. pretty significant for a country that didn't even lock down for as long as a lot of countries and had a fairly regular Mm. time in the early pandemic when so many other countries were suffering. So it's just bizarre to me that there would be so much pent up anger Mm. about that, you know, but I guess Canada did not set a good example. (laughs) I I do apologize. (laughs) But I also saw, inter- like, talking about the overlaps with American politics. That there's a uniquely New Zealand version of MAGA, which um, I guess some influencers printed hats and T-shirts of, called "Make Our Dern Go Away."
1: Yeah, so they they looked at the you know American campaign slogan and realized they could use the initials for a, a, a you know a New Zealand slogan, hmm. and there was one. Yeah, one influencer who printed these well, had, had them printed by some outfit in China, the these uh, caps like the Trump campaign caps that said but they said, you know, MAGA, make mm-hmm. our doom go away and he did bumper stickers and things and uh, Yeah, and this guy I'm not I'm not sure even how strongly he believes some of this stuff or whether it's just a bit of a grift. Um, you know, but um, He's still going now. I mean, not with the not with the hats, but with uh, you know promoting a lot of anti-government stuff. So I guess perhaps he is a bit of a, a true believer. Um, his latest thing, though, is um, he he spends much of the year in Thailand and is only in New Zealand for, for the summer. And he's now trying to help people you know leave the West and immigrate to a place like Thailand. You know, uh, escape tyranny by going to a country with an absolute monarchy. <laughs>
0: there's, there's so much stuff that's so hypocritical and so ridiculous Mm. on the right that it's just, um, it's hard to even take seriously because it's just so beyond ridiculous, you know? Yeah. Um, it's like, they know they're being hypocrites and they don't Mm. care. Yeah.
1: surely. Surely they know this. Yeah.
0: Yeah. And, uh, The anti globalist, anti UN, anti what did I see? Jordan Peterson very angry about Antifa not calling out the World Economic Forum. It's like, no, dude, like Antifa doesn't really care about them or not exactly a fascist
1: organization, you know, whatever, whatever legitimate critiques that
0: you can have. Um. No, but they're also not, like, Antifa's favorite organization that they're going to be defending them Mm. purposely and, like, not calling them. Because he was like, oh, yeah, well, I noticed that you didn't call them out or something ridiculous like that. And it's like, yeah, Antifa, known for (laughs) the love of the world... Economic mm. forums. Yeah. I, yeah. <laughs> it's so funny because they are actually utilizing like this global sort of playbook themselves while they're screeching about globalism mm. and uh, the UN and anything that has world in the title.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah, I write a bit about the, uh, you know, WEF conspiracy theories and, and this was, you know, you go back a couple of decades and this, this was a target of, of sort of far left anti-globalization protesters and, and this is, yeah, this is an organization of, uh, I, I hate using the word elites because it can be such a dog whistle, yeah, yeah. but it's the—you know—it it is the, the leaders in like global business and, and so on. And, and um, there's been this weird pivot in recent years from the kind of left-wing counter-globalization sort of movement that existed in like the late '90s and 2000s mm-hmm. to to now the opposition to the WEF coming from these right-wing conspiracy theorists who think the WEF is going to lock us in our 15-minute cities and make us eat insect protein and and all this ridiculous stuff like that
0: yeah can you tell me a little bit more about that like where are they getting this from because like especially the insect thing yeah i
1: mean it's it's uh it's such a bizarre bizarre one because um i think they've essentially extrapolated from there have been news articles and things about how you know insect proteins could be could be a food source in the future. I mean, they they already are. There's a lot of a lot of countries um, that, right. yeah, where people do do eat um, insect protein um, as part of their diet. But it's you know it's not uh, not common in the Western diet. Uh, and there are organisations, you know, and businesses are saying, hey, this could be the next big food. And they're saying this is how we could feed the world with with climate change and a growing population. And that's been extrapolated into the globalists are going to make you eat bugs, you know, and they're <laughs> going to uh, you know they're going to ban. I mean this particularly here where New Zealand's economy is very agriculture-driven and the farming sector is is quite powerful, Mm -hmm. uh, especially the dairy industry. So there's this real backlash against environmentalism that encourages things like, you know, plant-based diets or alternative mm. proteins, so you get this, you know, the globalists want us to they want to ban cows and they want to make us eat bugs or eat make us all go vegan or which, you know, the minority, I guess, of the environmental movement may be advocating for everyone to go vegan, but really um, the World Health Organization and the UN are not going to be banning cows anytime soon. And uh, <laughs>
0: <laughs> But in yeah. no way either has this been like a a very widespread sentiment like it's mm. probably just been like a couple articles here and there at random ones it's not like a big movement as far as I know yeah
1: yeah exactly and most of the push for it that I've seen has come from you know these these startups who who you know want to create you know future proteins. It's it's um, these, these businesses rather than governments or supranational organisations that are that are advocating for this. You know I think the what was it the UNFAO uh, Food Agriculture Organisation they they probably have at various times advocated for having more plant based foods or or whatever. But they're they're certainly not out there you know, with a plan to feed us all our insect protein paste or whatever as we... <laughs> and, you know, the 15-minute cities is, is another one, which is... There was a Guardian headline, which I think captured it quite well, like calling it the insidious socialist plot to allow you to walk to the shops. Um, th- this... Um, <laughs> this kind of, you know, urbanist idea of like, let's have amenities close to where you live and, you know, so that neighbourhoods will be walkable and we don't need to drive so much. This has been conceptualised as, as a kind of tyranny where, you know, the government's going to make you locked in um, to your 15-minute city, which, which is your neighbourhood. You know? um, and I think because people, because people were, um, you know, in these lockdowns during the pandemic and and things. I've, I've said that if you, if you were able to time travel back to like 2018 and say to people, oh, in a couple of years, the government is going to, you know, force you to stay in your home and they're going to close shops and you won't be that, you, you would sound like a conspiracy theorist. So I think people became a bit more open to this conspiracy thinking hmm. during the pandemic. And, and now we've got people who seriously believe that the globalists are going to, um, have like climate lockdowns. I mean, I'm really seeing a lot of, pivoting from COVID conspiracies to climate change conspiracies mm-hmm. um, with a, the same sort of talking points. And so, yeah, there are, there are people who really believe this stuff. And, and I think if we hadn't had the experience of the pandemic with lockdowns and and so forth, maybe people wouldn't be quite as susceptible to, to those kind of
0: things, but, but they are. Yeah. Yeah. It's definitely opened more people up to the, that stuff mm. and, uh, that's terrifying. Yeah. The QAnon stuff seems to be out of control as well. There was someone in your book that I was reading about, I think, Lane Davis. Am I getting the oh, name yes. right? Oh, yes, yeah.
1: I think so, yeah. The the Gamergate sort of influencer, is that the one?
0: I think so, but, like, he yeah. stabbed his father to death and because his dad and him were having an argument, and he had called him... A
1: racist and a Nazi or something. Yeah, like Nazi, Nazi. Yeah, his father called him a Nazi, and he called his then he called his parents like leftist pedophiles or, or something. I um, yes, that was that was a little bit of a late addition to to the book because I I'd, I'd written about um, some of what he. would Lane Davis had written about Gamergate and, and how he became a ghostwriter for Milo Yiannopoulos. And as the book was going through its first edit, the editor put a note in I think you should put in here about how he killed his parents. I'm like, he killed his parents? And I looked it up. I'm like, oh my God, okay. Oh, <laughs> yes, this, this just gets. Much worse, and so yeah, so I include that. But yeah, that's the trajectory this man went down from, you know, from starting with like Gamergate to then believing that, uh, you know, the feminists were influencing the UN to control our video games to the
0: please subscribe to the premium tier or above over at patreon.com forward slash nice mangoes to access full episodes of this mini-series and do get in touch if you think you or someone you know would be a good guest for this series Nicemangos.blog@gmail.com. at gmail.com no e in mangoes there are still a lot of countries i'm looking to cover